0: Hello and welcome to the Uni-Filtered podcast brought to you by Teach Australia. I'm your host, Akanksha Agarwal. In this episode, I sat down with a very special guest, Sophia Hotung, and we talked about the Hong Konger collection that she began, her journey with digital art, We also spoke about navigating social expectations and coping with failure and really redefining your own definition of success. So I'm very excited to share this with you. And Sophia has also been dealing with multiple chronic illnesses and disability, and so I think. Her experience is one that many can relate to and many can draw from within the charity community. So I'm really excited to share this with you today. Welcome to the show, Sophia. For our listeners, Sophia is the creator of The Hong Konger, which is a creative adaptation of the New Yorker magazine. Sophia is a writer, illustrator, music producer and advocate for chronic disability. Firstly, not a question, but I'm so thrilled to have you here. I've really admired your work for so long, and the floor is all yours.
1: Oh, I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you so much. I mean, I was just telling you off the recording, but this is my first Australian podcast.
0: It's such a pleasure to have you, and I'd love if we could start with just a bit about yourself and some of the work that you've been up to.
1: Sure. So my name is Sophia Ho-Tung. I am half British American, half Chinese. I'm from Hong Kong, grown up there my whole life. And I originally wasn't a creative um, person as a career. It was like a hobby, but I went into IT audit and tech when I graduated from college, university. And um, it only became my job to be a writer and an illustrator because I had chronic illnesses that ended up getting so bad, I couldn't do a nine to five job. And um, while being bedridden and having nothing to do, I wasn't responding to any more treatments. I just happened to start drawing on an iPad. I used Procreate, which is a very accessible app, like loads of people use it. And through Procreate, I just started making illustrations that gained traction mainly because I was making art about Hong Kong in Hong Kong and it resonated with a lot of people during the pandemic during a time after Hong Kong's protests I think people liked seeing a positive spin on their city and so through that engagement I ended up getting people who wanted me to do commissioned work to do gallery shows and Through there, I've had to learn how to navigate being disabled while also being creative. And I was able to monetize it because it's a flexible work schedule. I don't need to go to an office every day. I work a lot from bed and bathtubs. But my life has kind of been turned around in a very fortuitous way where I can do a job that I secretly actually really wanted to do when I was a kid, I can get paid for it. And um, I don't need to sacrifice my health anymore, which was the original issue when I was just trying to ignore my disabilities in order to like seem successful in a corporate setting.
0: Definitely. And I think our definitions of success and failure are often not rigid and almost evolve as we do. So thank you so much for sharing that, Sophia. I'm wondering how, kind of, I'd like to start with a note on failure and deconstructing what that means. So for instance, during university, there can be a very strong desire that sometimes manifests as pressure to want to meet parental social expectations and everyone almost seems to be chasing the same version of success so i'm wondering how your perception of failure has changed over the years and if there have been any kind of learnings about purpose
1: yeah i mean i my household wasn't the stereotypical asian household both my parents are half chinese so they are a good balance of being like fun and western not saying that if you have an asian parent they're not fun but they were strict and they were very concerned with especially they had two daughters, me and an older sister. Um, They were very concerned with us being financially independent. They didn't want us to like, oh, just find a husband. They wanted us to have jobs and careers and to be able to support ourselves. And so we had to study hard in school. We had to do extracurricular activities. And even though they weren't the strictest tiger parents, I went to schools with tiger parents (laughs) being my friend's parents. And um, so even though I didn't get like crazy tutoring Kumon every day, I absorbed an energy from my friends, from their parents that it was competitive. We'd be 10 years old, but we all had to go to Harvard. We all had to go to Cambridge. I heard the way people talked about you know, someone's older sibling who was um, a Fulbright scholar. So even though no one told me your worth is contingent on your productivity and success academically... It was a very clear message, just an insidious one. And um, that became more apparent when I got diagnosed with my first chronic illness. It's an autoimmune disease called autoimmune hepatitis. I got it when I was 16. It's genetic. It just means my immune system attacks my liver. And um, and so when I got this disease, they put me on a lot of steroids, a lot of drugs to treat it. But because I was 16, they also told me, like, you're young, you're like, healthy besides this. I don't want you to feel like it's the end of the world. You can go out and still do everything you wanted to do. Don't let this disease define you. So I was like, yeah, sure, okay. And rather than see that as something hopeful, I saw it as, like, my mission. I was like, yeah, I can't let this disease define me. I'm not weak. I'm a good return on investment still. This disability is not, I'm not going to be, like, a disabled person. I had just all these really ableist ideas of what it meant to be sick. And because I hadn't heard from any actual disabled people, I was like, yeah, this isn't real. I'm gonna just take the medication and live my life. And I did for you know, like the rest of high school and then into college. But the problem is when you start, when you ignore a disease, it's gonna make itself known at some point. And so by not going to the doctor, cause I thought it was a waste of time, by playing it fast and loose with treatments and like, oh, I forgot to take my drugs last night. It's fine, whatever. I ended up getting into a situation where my health got really bad. And the whole time, I just thought, I can't take time out to go to the doctor or take a semester off university because I need to continue to excel academically. All my friends at college are doing so much better than me. They're getting job offers at like consulting firms and banks and software companies. I need to play at that level. And if I give myself a break, I will certainly not be able to keep up. And so that pressure compounded, and it really took for me to completely crash, to end up in hospital probably nine times cycling. Like one stay in hospital for a month didn't do it. It took so many times to deprogram my brain from not caring about looking successful in the end. And, um, and it's so hard speaking to people now about it, not for myself, but because I can say like you got to take a break. You can't keep burning the candle at both ends. But for many people, especially if you're like a teenager to 25 years old, you don't realize when you need the break until it's far too late because you could always push yourself a bit more. You always know that sometimes you need the extra boost and trying to gauge when you need to call it and be happy with like potentially failing to save yourself in the long term from burnout. It's an impossible decision to make. Very few people can gauge the actual moment before you fall off the edge. But if I'm a cautionary tale, and if I can help people by being a cautionary tale, hopefully that's helpful.
0: No, absolutely. And were there any signs that indicated to you that something was wrong?
1: 100%, like really obvious signs. Like I I think I realized in my third year of four years at university, I hadn't really had three meals a day in maybe two years, and I just hadn't hadn't occurred to me. I just missed lunch or missed breakfast, and then had a dinner, and then realized that was my first meal of the day. I started fainting a lot in public, in classes, and in job interviews. But the whole time, everyone sort of—I don't know if you can relate to this—but everyone at uni is in a stress competition. No one slept. Oh, I only got two hours of sleep. I did an all-nighter. Oh, I haven't eaten in like three days. Oh, I've just been that we had a thing, I don't know if it's still around, but we had this food replacement drink called Soylent. Everyone was drinking Soylent for a while, so I just started drinking it as a meal replacement. And it wasn't an eating disorder where I was concerned about um, my how I looked, but I certainly had disordered eating because it just seemed inefficient to be having a meal when I could be working. And I didn't feel well, I didn't feel like I was hungry, and so I definitely, if I went to the doctor, my blood results were awful. Like there were very clear signs something was not right. But um, but at the same time, I'm in an environment where people are bragging about the same things. So I'm like, oh, well, if we're all in this sort of vibe together where no one's eating properly, no one's sleeping properly, and we're all working really hard, what makes me special? What makes me the one who deserves a break when other people are working harder than me? And honestly, the thing that eventually got me out of my mindset was to remove myself from that culture and that environment, which is so hard to do if, like, you can't just leave your top university because you don't like the vibe. It's like, it's, I can't tell people, just leave. Like, it's really difficult. But if you can find two or three people who acknowledge the craziness of hustle culture within that environment, that's at least helpful In getting you to have some perspective over what's important and usually grades are important aren't important no one remembers my gpa no one cares about my gpa now i didn't i didn't need to do all those all-nighters and um what's healthy because a lot of people told me like you're in your 20s you can sacrifice your health for 10 years when you're 30 you can like pay attention to it but nothing bad will happen to you really when you're in your 20s that's not true i was bedridden at 25 and furious because I thought that like my body could handle it and it really can't like taking care of yourself isn't something we need to start doing when we're like old it's something that is really important early on and thinking your body can take the hits and take the hours and take the soylent replacement drinks is dangerous thank you so much for the
0: honesty I think So many people shy away or shove such experiences under the carpet out of fear of judgment or because it's just easier to suppress them and I think you know there is a certain vulnerability in sharing such experiences and it really is so powerful to hear that because I think so many young people need to uh, have that wake-up call to put their themselves first and their health first um, regardless of the social messaging so thank you again and building on that social perception and social constructions of self-worth they linked to metrics outcomes the hashtag hustle culture and so many more stereotypes as a woman, and having had conversations with women in leadership, particularly, there there can be a very real desire to prove yourself, and as a consequence, feelings of inadequacy follow because you end up juggling so many different roles. So, how did you move away from this externally driven view of meaning, because it just not feel like it was a sudden shift it's
1: crazy how much we how much um validation we give that and even when we grow up and we see like tech bros in silicon valley like elon musk saying he doesn't sleep for more than five hours a day bro like no why you don't need to like the product is not going to be as good given the cost of it anyway yeah (laughs) i've gone for ages about this I mean, okay, so all of this is gonna sound like a massive generalization, and I recognize this is a generalization. So that's my caveat. But yes. yeah, um, what I have observed and read about is when like our parents, like our mother's generation in the 80s went into the office and started becoming a part of the workforce in a way where they demanded equal rights to men, it was great and it was very empowering in a workforce setting but no one let women off the hook in the household. So we suddenly had um, all the domestic expectations that we had in the 1960s. Plus, we had to compete on the same level as men in the workplace and be as good as them, if not better. So you've got suddenly two jobs as a woman. And one of them's not even paid, usually, but you have to be everything that you were meant to be in the 1960s. Beautiful, a good wife, uh, know how to you know, fix a fix a meal, know how to raise children, want to raise children. But you also have to be smart now. You have to be good at um, your subject at university or school, then good at your job. But at the same time in your job and at home, you have to be nice. You have to be helpful. You have to want other people to do well. You have to be likable. And that's a lot to expect a person to do, an adult grown woman to do. But the thing is, we don't just expect adult grown women to do it. We expect young girls to do it. And from, I didn't grow up with brothers and there was only my dad in the household. But I remember a lot of my friends, especially in more traditional Chinese households, they had to cook, clean, do chores when they were, when we were like girls, I'd go to their house for a sleepover and we'd all do the dishes. And their older brother, who's as capable, doesn't have to learn any of that. Because he's a guy and it's not that, like, why would you? You're a guy. Your wife would do that. Your mom would do that. And so I think maybe I'm the youngest of the millennials or the oldest of the Gen Z. I'm born in 1994. Um, And so I'm hoping that this Gen Z generation that I guess I'm an honorary ancient member of (laughs) is, is less affected by the expectations that were placed on millennial women and Gen X women in that, you don't need to have the domestic pressure and the, um, and the work pressure. But since I grew up with an older sibling, who's very much a millennial, my parents were boomers and Gen X, they, um, I grew up having to be both having to be like good at household stuff, good at the work stuff and package it all in being very nice. And I talk a lot about people pleasing because that's what I do. I remember, um, I remember just like, finding it absolutely impossible to confront people or raise feedback or say no to stuff. And um, I found it so hard, and sometimes I still find it hard to ask for things that are totally within my right to ask for because I'm a woman and I don't wanna seem mean because if I'm mean, someone won't like me and then I'm a failure. People will talk about me and I won't get work and then I won't get money and then I can't eat and I can't pay for my drug treatments. It becomes this massive snowball. And failure for women, I find, and again, massive generalization, failure and kindness and niceness can sometimes feel like there's a relationship between them. Because when we are not nice, people don't want to help us. And I think the threshold for men is they don't need to be as nice to get what they want. And women have to be so nice and so accommodating. And we end up in this catch-22 where if I'm mean and bossy, I'm not going to get the jobs because no one wants to work with a mean and bossy girl but if i'm nice i don't get paid because i'm trying to get someone to pay their bills so it's impossible and it can make you want to throw in the towel and it can make you just want to be like do you know what i can't i can't be asked to do this anymore the pressure is too much we haven't even gotten into like the intersectionality of women of color or disabled women or trans women like we could go on and it gets worse if you're not a white looking woman so It's just um, linking it back to failure because this is a long-winded answer. I think that as a woman, there are more insidious ways that failure comes into play and success has to be navigated. I think that compounds when you are part of other minorities as well. And I think just the more we talk about it and the more we raise these issues with people who might not know they even have privileges. If you're a white guy, if you're a white woman, if you're an able-bodied woman, having those conversations and being able to listen to those conversations without taking offense is significant and important and just requires like people to to talk and not get so outraged by the talking of it all.
0: Absolutely, and thank you so much for sharing. I think conversation is definitely the first step to bring about any sort of societal change. And... So that's definitely true, and I can definitely relate to this idea of wanting to be nice and be a people pleaser. Um, And I definitely think that it's so important for women to be able to take up space and have their voices heard. So thank you for that. My next question is a little bit of a pivot, but you've really dip your feet in so many diverse projects, including the Failure Club, the Art Rat Rejects right to Murder Mystery podcast, which I thoroughly enjoyed. How have you balanced exploring all these different interests whilst also honing in on each skill, but also balancing kind of university?
1: Just for context, if people aren't familiar with, I guess, Failure Club. Failure Club is a talk I give, usually at schools, but I've done it with a few adult groups now, where we basically unpack why we're scared of failure and hopefully dismantle some frameworks we internalize um, mentally to get us to rethink how bad failure could actually be and hopefully fail more. So that's Failure Club. The Art Frat Rejects podcast you mentioned is was a joke I did before I even started illustrating and writing. I did it because I was bedridden and there was a pandemic. It's a podcast I made with two of my friends. I, don't, I never even edited the rest of the episodes, but true fans will know what that is. Anyways, it's kind of unrelated to my work, but I learned how to do a podcast from making that podcast. I learned how to give school talks by doing Failure Club. And when it comes to that sort of balance of like, how do you develop skills in podcasting and drawing on an iPad and writing a book and um, and keep focused on it, but also keep diverse and ensure breadth and depth? A lot of it is motivated not by a strategy. I'm not like, okay, in June, it's podcasts and in July, it's going to be a book. It's it's really me having too many hobbies. <laughs> and um, that sounds like a like very pick me horse girl, but... I, when I was a kid, I was really lucky that I was able to do a lot of free play. I would just hang out in my room, alone or with my sister. We'd play dolls. We'd play cars. We'd like... My sister had this game where she would teach our books. Like, um, we'd take all our books off the shelves, like these books that are behind me right now. And she'd call all the authors by their first name like they were students, so she, like rolled Dahl's book would be that. And she'd be like, Roald, what do you think about Question 4? And we'd play like that for ages. And just through all these hobbies, we would practice being a teacher. We'd practice being like singers or dancers. And I think every kid does that. I don't think this is unique. But our parents led us. Our parents didn't send us to Kumon every day or to public speaking every day. They really let us explore goofing around in our bedroom with our books and our toys and our board games and Barbies and because of that I think it let me feel like I could play around with a lot of stuff and not feel intimidated by it there was no expectation for anything to be good so if I found like clay I would like make some ugly clay thing and it was fun and then I would maybe when I was older I'd suddenly see in my high school they had a kiln and I'd be like yeah I've done that before I could do this now and there was no pressure to be good at it because no one ever made me feel like that was even a question. And, um, and so as I got older and I was bored in bed and bedridden with a pandemic going on, I told my friends from university, I was like, I'm listening to a lot of podcasts. I feel like we could make one. Do you guys just want to try and make one for fun? Really low pressure. And they were like, yeah, sure, we're all bored. And so we did it for fun. And we got really into it. And I edited, we made 30 episodes. I only ever posted seven because I got bored of editing it. And when I got bored of editing it, I found an iPad and started drawing on that. It really isn't that structured. It's kind of just letting yourself play as a 20-something-year-old person and not feeling like it's a waste of time, not thinking that everything needs to have an end goal. Like we didn't make that podcast to be like, we're going to get a million views by the end of the year. We made it because we were bored and thought it was funny. And a lot of people don't think it's funny, but that's fine because that wasn't the point. And um, a lot of my best projects that people end up really liking and responding well to are the ones I made from an authentic place of enjoyment, and the ones that sometimes flop are the ones where I was thinking more about Instagram engagement or thinking more about sales or thinking more about what other people would like. And I honestly, we're all pretty similar as humans. If you like something and you think something's going to work and it's giving you joy, it will give other people joy. The joy I get from drawing Hong Kong as my hometown and reflecting on it, so many other people grew up like me and resonate with me on different levels, and so they like what I'm churning out. When I try to imagine what a hypothetical fake person would like, that person usually doesn't exist, and no one really likes what I put out. Um, so that's a disappointing answer in the sense that there's no real structure or strategy I can offer. I can only offer permission for what it's worth and what authority I have to goof around and play with things, and not feel the pressure to ever post them or tell anyone you're doing them. It's like um, You know that saying, if a tree falls in the forest, does it even make a sound? It absolutely makes a sound because you're remembering the things you're doing that no one can see. And one day they're going to come into play. And the skills you had from making a podcast, doing claymation, drawing on an iPad, are going to be useful in some way.
0: Absolutely. I think play has been... uh, I I took a design class a few months ago, and the professor had us um, actually, you know, engage with play, and I just found the entire process so much fun, and just, I felt this energy that I don't think I had ever felt before as an adult, and I can definitely relate to the power of play, so thank you for sharing that. and. I'm wondering, are there any spaces within which you kind of do art just purely for yourself and not for public consumption?
1: Yes, a lot. Like, every now and then I feel pressure on Instagram to be like, oh, I haven't posted in like a week. I should probably post something. And I go through, like, stuff I didn't want to show people. And I always catch myself where I'm like, you don't need to cave into it. You don't need to make stuff for people all the time. Just make stuff for yourself. And sometimes I will make about nine versions of an artwork and I'll paint it differently and I'll listen to a podcast or I'll watch TV or an audiobook, or something. And I'll just paint a version that I like and then I'll paint it again because there was something else I wanted to try out. And there are so many versions of it, but maybe I show only one in the end or I show zero or I'll do like a massive grid post a year later being like, oh, I made these once and nothing ever happened to them. There's a lot of, I think of it like an iceberg, the stuff that you see people produce is the tip of the iceberg and everything else matters because you need to do all the groundwork to um to have that tip sticking out. Like you can't see, but behind me and we're on a podcast, so you definitely can't see if you're listening, but Behind me are a bunch of books that I like self-published when I was 14, and I didn't self-publish them to go anywhere. I self-published them because I wanted to see my writing in a bound book, and there's only one copy. I have it. I've never shown it to anyone, and they're like terribly written. They're by a 14-year-old. They're not good, but I made them because I just wanted to try it out. I wanted to use the website that let you upload your manuscript. and. I think doing things, not for the end goal, but just for like gleefully hanging out with yourself is really, really constructive. Everything you do will be useful, even if no one knows you're doing it. And sometimes I set very strict rules. So just as an example, the thing that made me well-known, in Hong Kong at least, was the thing called The Hong Konger, which is an art collection where I took New Yorker magazine covers and I would subvert them to reflect Hong Kong. And sometimes they do a comparison between East and West. Sometimes they just show Hong Kong. And people would ask me, oh, can you make one of my business? Or can you do one of my husband walking our dog? And at first I thought, yeah, okay. And I, I only ever did one commissioned Hong Konger, which was a Christmas special for a club in, um, in Hong Kong. And it was a completely different process and I hadn't thought that it would be so different when I said yes to it, but it became a job. And before that, it had been a hobby. And the pressure I felt, the inputs that other people had that I had to incorporate, it suddenly took all the joy out of it. And so after I made that one, I thought, you know what, I'm not going to let any people pay for the Hong Konger anymore. You can't buy me in that section. You can buy me and I'll make you your own artwork, but it's not a Hong Konger. It's not got anything to do with this collection. This collection has to be just for myself and it has to be feedback like proof. I can take like thoughts if people have them. I'm not like that uh, strict about it. But if someone was like, hey, can I pay you to make a Hong Konger? I'd be like, no, this is 100% me. It has to be the hobby. It cannot be commercialized in the creative like period. I'll sell them later, but they have to come entirely from me. And especially when I was also doing a lot of corporate work and a lot of design work for companies that were paying me and were being very pernickety as is their right to have feedback. It was good to have the Hong Konger be my thing and be the thing that was protected from other people's pressure.
0: Wonderful. I think you know the fact that you were able to preserve that sense of sanctity but also carve out that space for yourself to start with is quite a feat and i think so many of us can draw from that experience of finding specific interests and really pursuing them but also making time to do them with with no sort of strings attached to pivot slightly, what was the transition like for you when you started University at Barnard?
1: Yeah, well, so I went to college in the US. I um, It's called Barnard College, and it's in New York City. It's the women's college that's part of Columbia University. So that's some context. And I, I really enjoyed college. I'd been at boarding school for about seven years in total. So I was used to living away from home. And I found... U.S. college to be a lot more. Um, I don't want to say mollycoddled, but there was a lot more attention on people than there would have been in a UK university. So my mum went to UK university, my sister went to UK university. So I didn't really have a reference point over what going to college in the U.S. would be like. I found it was far more hands-on than a British university, and um, and I'm saying I don't know much about Australian universities, but there was yeah, there was a lot more. Um, time spent in class. There was a lot more camaraderie on campus, less drinking just because the drinking age in the US is 21. And that's fine with me because I have a liver disease and can't drink. (laughs) And so when it came to the living aspect of it, I didn't really have a culture shock. New York's very similar to Hong Kong. In fact, it's crowded and a bit intense. So I didn't get culture shock there. What I got culture shock from was the big fish, little pond situation. My high school graduating class had 26 kids in it, including me. So I was competing with 25 other people. I did A-levels, which is a British sort of academic system. And I took English, Spanish, and biology. My English class had two people in it and I was gonna major in English. So the competition I had in English was basically me and my best friend from high school who were on par, not competitive, and just enjoyed class. I get to a school that is famous for producing writers like Anna Quindlin, Jhumpa Lahiri, and English is intense and it's competitive. And I suddenly realized, oh my God, I'm not the best person at what I do anymore. I am a small fish in a big pond now. And that I think spurred what was an inferiority complex and imposter syndrome over how I had to perform. And when you think about the competitiveness in Hong Kong and the competitiveness in the Ivy League, that's why I suddenly felt all this pressure to stay up late at night, go over, do the extra credit, um, hang out in the library, try and like talk to teachers in office hours. I really felt inferior there was also like a little bit of oh you're an international student um, you're not going to get same opportunities as a u.s citizen because you can't get a visa to work so a lot of pressure compounded to make me feel like this was a whole new ball game and i needed to up my up my game if i was going to be competitive in it and that had took on different forms as i as the four years i went through college but um, By that, I mean, I started out very academically focused and towards the end became more hell-bent on job interview prep, um, trying to network, trying to get someone to hire me. But looking back now, 28 years old now, I really didn't need to work that hard. And I cannot stress enough that people won't remember you for the job you went to or the grades you had or how many times you participated in a seminar. They will remember you if you were nice. And I think a lot of the time I was so focused on studying. I didn't, I wasn't as warm as I should have been to the person next to me in lecture. I didn't go out as much. I was so focused on clubs and I was like, clubs are social. It counts as socializing. No, we're like making a newspaper. That's not socializing. That's like editing and bossing people around. People will remember you as a good or nice person more than a smart or productive person. And I think it's easy to say that to once you've left college but always try and be the friendlier person rather than the smartest person in the room
0: absolutely and I think empathy goes such a lot in. it does yeah I'm wondering when did you start being vocal about chronic illnesses and chronic disability was what was that transition period like for you
1: Honestly, it didn't come from a very altruistic perspective. Um, I I wasn't that vocal about being chronically ill in college. I only had one disease at the time, and it was fairly manageable. I didn't have to do anything that obvious. I didn't have to inject insulin or do anything like that. So no one really knew, and I didn't want people to know that I was sick. I thought they might like not invite me to parties or like think I could keep up. So I didn't really tell people unless I had to. When I started getting so sick, though, that I was missing work or if I was um, unable to like go because I was in hospital, I felt a little bit like I had to say something because being like disabled is a good excuse, and I thought people would let me off the hook. I was very paranoid that people would think I was lazy, and so to tell people about the illness was kind of my way of being like, see, I'm not lazy, I'm sick, and ah, which isn't altruistic, it's me trying to justify, um trying to keep up a, a brand of being hardworking. And only after I probably felt the need to um, I wrote a lot of blog posts being like, this is how my disease works, not to get people to understand the illness, but more to let me off the hook, which isn't a noble thing. It's me trying to make excuses. And the excuses are correct, but it was that was my intention. To get people to understand why i was not being useful and only after people who were also sick started messaging me and saying i'm so glad you phrased it like this i was trying to find a way to phrase it i always think of it like this and they gave me a way of thinking about it once i engaged with other disabled people i started to realize i could make more resources that would actually be helpful that weren't about covering my butt but more about being useful to a wider community and honestly this is a really bad thing to say but i didn't meet someone with my chronic illnesses um, until 2019 and i was diagnosed in 2011 for eight years i had not spoken to anyone else with my illness i had only spoken to people who were like you can overcome this grind 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 hustle hustle and the minute i started meeting other chronically ill people, I just felt like finally I didn't need to make excuses. I didn't need to let myself off the hook. Everyone just got it. Everyone understood that these diseases are weird and they don't look like what we think of when we think of disability, which is often like a wheelchair or um, someone missing a limb or someone uh, with a very visible sort of disability. Suddenly I could talk to people who got it and I didn't need to make excuses anymore. I could focus on making constructive resources or giving constructive talks and um yeah so it doesn't it's not noble the way I started out becoming an advocate it just happened because I've been talking about it already and I realized the power of what I could be doing if I changed my mission and what I was
0: no that's okay I think very often we lack the self-awareness within the very moments that we need it most and so I think that's completely normal and um that's completely okay. I'm also I think this goes to show how important it is to surround yourself with people and environments that really help you thrive and that nurture you and uplift you and inspire you. Um so I, I definitely can understand that I'm wondering at what point specifically did that
1: shift happen? I don't know. I think every now and then I feel like I've said too much. I feel like I've really exposed myself in a way that's embarrassing to me. And I think about specific people, particularly people who didn't know me as a disabled person, people I went to school with, people I worked with and had put up an image of being like productive and corporate. Sometimes when I post something on LinkedIn about being sick and someone from my old office likes it, a part of me is like, oh, I feel like I need to listen to that podcast episode again or reread the blog post just to make sure that it's not super disabled sounding. And then I check myself because I'm still battling ableist thoughts. I've been raised by them. Like, I think every disabled person has ableist voices in their head that tell them that they are only useful if they are productive, if they are helping others, if they take a break, they're not really, they don't deserve to have things or be things. I really have to remind myself that that isn't true. And I have to try and catch thoughts that aren't friendly towards disabled living and life. Um, And so the decision to speak about things, part of it is to try and validate other people who have that voice in their head the other thing is my story about becoming an illustrator and a writer doesn't make sense if i don't mention the illness like it like the whole point i've managed to do this sort of creative career is because of the illness and so i think i found it easy to start talking about it because it was a necessary component of the storyline that led to the Hong Konger and led to the Korea part and so when you could package it with the disabled angle and then there's kind of like the other angle which is artistic as well it felt easier to talk about and it felt more accessible to get people to listen because sometimes like no one wants to admit it but if you see like a disabled person's story a lot of people will think oh that's so depressing I'm not going to listen to it and I don't like it particularly when people try and make my story inspirational and negate the very ongoing issues that I will continue to always face as a disabled person. I don't want people to think the art cured me. Um, But I think the art helps Trojan horse a disability narrative into people's minds. um, When otherwise maybe they would be like, I don't know any disabled people. I'm not disabled. This story is not interesting to me. Hopefully the art makes it interesting.
0: Honestly, I think it's just you, the aura that you exude and the person that you are that really um, makes it interesting and all of you, Um, but I think regardless of the disability, the art speaks for itself. Um, Thank you. (laughs) Thanks. Is there a specific approach that you've taken to navigate the you know, very real physical kind of aspect to all of these doctor appointments and hospital stays and so forth. Like, like I'm a
1: very, one of my jobs was IT audit and I'm a very like analy- analytics person. I love a spreadsheet. I love Airtable. So I do a lot of, I'm very anal about time management, about document management, insurance bills management. And so the like, literal admin managing of disability is helpful when you have a brain that kind of enjoys that. I know there's a lot of people who just hate that sort of stuff and it gets out of control. But for me, I have like this gross pleasure in numbers. So that is how I manage it, like on a very literal level. When it comes to managing the psychological aspect of it, the part where I know I have deadlines, I know I have to be working, but I know I'm also going into hospital for a week And this drug is going to completely annihilate any motor function I have. And I'm going to be tired for probably 20 hours a day. So that's maybe two hours of eating and just like brushing my teeth, showering and two hours of work. Like that's a lot of logistics in my brain. And at points like that, my brain is sometimes very sad and very stressed and wants to just throw in the towel and be like, you know what, I'm so done with everybody, with trying to explain disability to people, with trying to work and keep up like a professional website and brand. There are real low points where I'm just like, I don't need this anymore. And before I used to, in college, I used to be like, okay, come on, we got to Let's go. Let's go. None of that. Let's go. Sometimes that's useful. I'm not saying you should never pull yourself up by the bootstraps, but sometimes I just let myself rest. I will email the people, be like, hey, I know our like calendar said that we'd meet on Thursday. I need to bump that to two weeks from now. I'm in hospital. And 99.9% of the time, the response I get is, "Cool, no problem. Even though I've been anxietying about it for like nine hours before I send the email, people are a lot more understanding than I give them credit for. And I think it's because I'm so hard on myself, I expect everyone else will be hard on me that's not the case. So I let myself be sad. I make myself take the break, take the time, lie in bed. I will let myself be absolutely useless if I'm awake in bed. Like if I'm awake, I'm not like, like we have to get dressed and get up and make some food. I will like watch Instagram reels for four hours in bed. I will like do Sudokus on my phone. I will do really unproductive things because I know that, it's like a give and take. If I'm going to push myself really hard sometimes, I need to be the most relaxed, chill controller other times. And honestly, compared to my old habit, which was to schedule every minute of my life, schedule meals to like the 42 minute mark, and then schedule the remainder of the hour to wash the dishes, which is what I used to do. It's so much better to just give yourself a break. If, like Think about what the worst thing that happen, that could happen would be if you um, postponed a phone call, if you delayed a deadline, if you let yourself go to bed early or sleep in. What's the worst thing that can happen? Usually the worst thing that could happen is a minor inconvenience to someone else or you make up time later. And the worst thing that could happen if you continue to push yourself and not give yourself those breaks is you burn out to the point where something really bad could happen for the in the long run.
0: Yeah, I think there's so much there to unpack. I recently came across the podcast A "Diary of a CEO," and they interviewed a guest, Simon Sinek, and on and it was the theme was leadership, and he was very vulnerable and kind of opened up about his struggles with loneliness and. The fact that he just wanted someone to sit in the mud with him and not give advice, not preach or offer any kind of false positivity, but really just be a listening ear for what he was going through. And I think, you know, so many people can relate to that.
1: This yeah. is a hundred percent. I actually had this a few years ago. Now I had this conversation with my mum because basically this, this poor woman. She has two daughters, both of which have chronic illnesses. My sister has type one diabetes, and um, and one time my sister was on the phone and I was like in the room next door, and uh, they were just talking, and my mum kept giving my sister advice, and. It's like a classic, I don't know if it's an Asian parent thing or a British parent thing, but my mum is a very just on with it kind of woman. Um, She's got like, she's very on it. She's just a very organised lady. And she, I think, was listening to my sister be like, oh man, this diabetes like whatever. And she was like, well, you should do this. Have you done this? Have you thought about going to this doctor? And after I got off, my mum got off the call, she was like, oh, I don't know what to do. I try so hard to give this advice. And I was like, honestly, we don't need advice. There's nothing you can say to us that we haven't thought about for like our entire childhoods of having these diseases. We really just need someone to listen and validate. And I think when you're a parent, all you want to do is fix stuff. All you want to do is like, give the answer. But one thing I've found, and I've I don't know, this is maybe rich coming from me, given I've just talked a lot about advice, but it is impossible to tell people what to do. It has to occur to people naturally for them to do it. Like when I was getting sick and fainting in college and not eating, I had like multiple mini interventions with doctors, with family members, with friends. And I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. People will tell you what you need to hear, but you will only be able to internalize it if it occurs to you independently. And so giving someone advice when they come to you, even if they come to you for advice, is not always the most productive thing. Sometimes just listening to the problem and sitting with that person through, like, Simon Sinek's loneliness, through my sister's frustration, through my, like, anxiety would be more productive in the long run.
0: Yeah, and it's almost like sometimes you're grieving something that you've lost or you're you're going for that kind of lonely learning, so it's yeah. necessary that's to not that's suppress that's and um internalize that so. exactly yeah was there a turning point or a specific moment in time after which things change for you in terms of um kind of managing you know your struggles with eating and navigating these different chronic illnesses or was this more of a Um, gradual, organic
1: sort of... I mean, I've never had, throughout any of this process, throughout, like, Mm -hmm. suddenly realizing I needed to change my career, getting the iPad, I never had an aha moment. I never suddenly was like, I know, with this iPad, I will be an artist. I never came out of hospital and was like, this time it will be different. I will not go back to work. It's very gradual when i think big life changes happen that require a mindset change like you can have a big life change by getting married or having a kid or moving country but when your mindset has to change no one suddenly like flips like not to make it dark but you don't join a cult and from day one buy in you're slowly programmed into it and like at college i was slowly programmed into buying into hustle culture and just as i slowly programmed in i would had to slowly deprogram out and so it took like i said nine times of me cycling in and out of hospitals and jobs to finally realize the cycle can't repeat i think that's the moment when if there was an aha moment it's realizing the cycle can't repeat and the when the, the way you acknowledge that is by making slight changes every time so First time I like started my first job out of college going really well. I was trying to like volunteer for extra work and stuff. So people would like me and I got sick and I went into hospital and in my, I had to leave that job and move to a different city with better care for my particular disease. And then I started a new job and I was like, right, I should just, um, I should tell people at this job that I'm ill just so they have that as a baseline because it surprised everyone when I suddenly went to hospital last time. So I was like, yeah, I'll be fine. As long as people know, no, it's like, I'll still get sick. It didn't help anything. Left that job, moved back to Hong Kong. Third job starts. Okay. I just need to tell people I'm ill. And I also need to ask if I can work from home for like two days a week. And that still didn't work because I was still on the clock. I was still pushing it. I was Not only working from home, I was working longer hours because I was now working the commute time and into the evening. So you try adjusting. You know there's a problem to be fixed and you start experimenting with a control and then you change a variable. You change another variable. It fails, it fails. And finally, after those iterative feedback cycles, you end up with a system that works for you. And it can be drastically different from the one you started with. So my first experiment was being an IT auditor, putting my hand up for everything and pretending I wasn't sick. My last experiment is entirely working from home, completely different industry, don't have a boss, probably unable to ever have a proper corporate job again, but it finally works. The experiment works. So it's dissatisfying in the fact you have to kiss a lot of job toads to find your job prints, but it's the cycle. There's never really a huge click where it all fits into place
0: that makes sense yeah I think yeah. um just I guess being, being at that, that crux of desperation kind of compels you to change, change. Um, that makes sense yeah
1: and it works in like a lot of different environments as well in our 20s now like our parents age they'd have a job for like 20 years at the same company I don't know We can't go into all the reasons now why that's changed economically. But now Gen Z and millennials, we hop, we experiment, we go through different situations in our 20s and 30s to sometimes 40s to to see what is the ideal situation for us. And so if you are going through that, if someone's going through that, it's not unique, it's not embarrassing. So many of my friends have their own version of this that could be related to Anything. Mine just happens to be a disability work thing. Some other people, it's partners. Some people, it's countries they live in or a family issue. It's the system works in everyone's life. And it's just a case of having a mindset where, you know, at the end of the day, by process of elimination, you're going to land on the right situation for yourself.
0: Yeah. And I think it's just a a relative thing as to whether you're successful or not at that stage in your life.
1: Yeah, success is so arbitrary, and you can honestly engineer success to be whatever you want it to mean. No one has the same definition, and if your idea of success is to run a Fortune 500 company and live in a mansion and have a wife and a girlfriend and nine kids, cool. If your expectation for success is to have a nice apartment and a cute cat and you live with your partner and you go on nice walks and you live near an ice cream store, That's as legitimate. But I feel like one is more attainable than the other. And if that's your idea of success, you will have a lot easier time getting there. You will be satisfied a lot more quickly. You will have a very content life earlier on. And then you just have a great life. And at the end of the day, that's all that people really want. They just want comfort and safety. And if you can adjust your expectations for comfort and safety to be something kind of attainable, you've won life. You don't need to graduate with honors. You don't need the best job. You don't need the hottest boyfriend. Like you kind of just can pick. And then if you pick what you have right now, you're kind of successful right now. It's really like easy to be successful if you're willing to change your idea of success.
0: Yeah. and, And sometimes you might have your version of success, but realize it's not actually success.
1: This is what I found. I was so hell-bent on getting a shiny tech job after university. And I remember being a month in, feeling really sad. I was in Edinburgh. I worked at KPMG Edinburgh as a information risk management analyst. And I didn't know anyone in Edinburgh. I was all alone. I went back to my apartment in the evening. I remember sitting on my windowsill because I didn't have a dining table yet. And I was eating pasta and like jar marinara sauce out of the saucepan, looking out the window, just lonely, feeling ill, not really liking information risk management that much and thinking, oh my God, I worked and killed myself at college to get this job and I don't like it and no one cares from college that I'm here doing this job. No one's impressed. I am not around any friends. I'm so lonely. What have I done? Like, what was the point? I'm not having a good time. And if honestly, if you, I think, I wouldn't say like, do what you love. I don't think that's a hugely productive thing to tell people, but don't do things purely because you think other people will think better of you for doing them. Do things because you enjoyed them and you get pleasure out of them and they get you closer to having a content life.
0: Yeah, I think that's just so real and...
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I totally said like, I'm not gonna give people advice and now I'm like giving all this advice. Like, I don't expect people to be like, oh, I understand now and we'll do it. But I don't know. I feel like a lot of, I heard about, I heard a lot of this from 28 year olds when I was 22, 21. And I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever and now i listen to it and i'm like oh they were right so honestly it will occur to people at different stages versions will occur my like way of thinking about life is not the only way of thinking about life but if it plants a seed that's the goal and i'm
0: sure it will plant many seeds and i think you know success really does boil down sometimes to the smallest of moments and those micro moments be it you know being able to get out of bed or going for a run or doing something you really enjoy or just being out in nature um so i really think that sometimes we glorify success as being made up of these really large milestones um purely kind of largely socially driven milestones but if you really do think about the day-to-day and the small things that do bring us joy it's often the most trivial and um, almost quirky things
1: during the day so. Exactly and like I remember being a kid and my parents being very nice and taking me on holiday and they'd be like, look at this view. And I'm like, I don't care about the view. And now I look at a view and I'm like, the view is so nice. Like I could feel myself becoming old, but it's the view, but, um, but it's other things. It's appreciating the silly face your dog makes. It's appreciating a really good slice of pizza. Like just very small things start to have more meaning and, Another thing I really try to remind myself about is when I don't get things, when things don't go my way, when I like apply for a, for a commission and then they go with another artist, or if I want my book to be picked up by an agent, the agent rejects it, I really try not to see that as the end of the world. Like, my career is over. I really try to tell myself, before you even applied to that, you were already pretty happy with your life. You did cool things. Like everything was good and you were satisfied so the fact that like something that you wanted up here failed and you're still down here you were happy already you were happy at the lower level without that extra thing so so it doesn't really need to affect you it doesn't need to upset you because where you were already was good so if you were in if you're in university right now and you enjoy like two thirds of your courses. You have some pretty solid friends. You're excited about what you're gonna do over the next holiday. You um, you have a, a nice mum or dad or a cute pet at home. Like life's pretty good. You don't need to pay your bills. Maybe your parents are paying for like a part of your tuition. Life's pretty good. If you don't get a job, oh my God, people will hire you at some point. Like there will always be jobs around. You do not need to worry about getting a job straight out of graduation. You don't need to worry about that job coming from a company with a famous name. There are so many things that I used to think were so important. And I really held myself to account to achieve them. So that, not that I could brag, but so that I could be like, yes, I um, actually work at a name brand accounting firm. Oh my God, no one cares. No one is thinking about you. No one is going to hold you to account the way you are holding yourself to account.
0: Thank you for that advice, I think there is a real expectation that we hold ourselves to that is this perfectionistic, unattainable ideal which can impact your mental health as well.
1: There is the flip side. I feel like we need to acknowledge the person who doesn't try and who's like, oh, I don't need anything, my dad will pay for my life and like obviously there's a spectrum of people and telling people who aren't trying are entitled that now they're off the hook. Not productive, but if what I'm telling you about myself sounds like you and you put inordinate pressure on yourself for fairly arbitrary things, that message is mainly for you. No,
0: definitely. And so many (laughs) people out there are genuine.
1: Yeah, I feel like a lot more people are eager and want to do well and are humble and are hard on themselves rather than, you know, the 1% that aren't.
0: Definitely. (laughs) Um, have just two more questions, questions before we wrap up. Sure. I'm just, I'm just wondering, wondering what, what art, art means for you, and whether
1: that's changed <sighs> with time. <laughs> oh, it's such a like. The short answer is I have no idea, because there are so many versions of it. Like, I'll go see other people's art, and sometimes I'm like, "That's a glass of water. That's not art." And then I'm like, "No, that is art. That's very yes, that's very good." Um. So honestly, art's anything which is the like dumbest answer because it's like a cop-out. But I really can't pinpoint what art would be objectively. Is it something you make? No. Could it be something you see? Maybe. Like, oh my God, we could, um, there must be podcasts, like seasons dedicated to unpacking this. But if we stripped it down, like very personally to me, when I think I'm going to do art, what does that mean? Part of it is a form of meditation for me i call it i enter a flow state when i do it i um when i read or when i write or when i do art or when i play music those are like the four things i like to do that are kind of creative um i can enter a part of my brain that is very fixated on the task at hand usually my brain is all over the place it's like thinking about five different things and it's on and i need to like tune out and i've tried in the past When you're chronically ill, everyone tells you to do yoga. So I've tried yoga, tried meditation. I've tried like mindfulness with a Tibetan singing bowl. Like, you know, you try everything at one point. And I really didn't find anything that worked. And um, then I realized that I actually had things already that were trying to get me to the state that yoga or meditation or Tibetan singing bowls were trying to get me to. And it was being creative it was making music or it was writing or it was drawing and for um for drawing i don't know why i think it's because with other things with music or with writing or reading there's a narrative in my head and i'm following a narrative with drawing when you get down to the minutia of like picking a brush and going pixel by pixel or doing shading there's no narrative there your brain isn't following a trail it's just in this sort of orb of nothingness. And so when I think of art, I think of that absolute peaceful orb of not following a narrative, not working my brain in any way. It's a true flow state of just stillness. And that can generate different things. Um, That can make me feel peaceful. That can, I I hope maybe in the long term, it's reduced my inflammation. But at the end of the day, I feel a physical sort of calmness and happiness and energy from that. And I'm not a I'm not like a sort of hippy sort of spiritual person, but even I who's pretty skeptical of this stuff feels a physiological benefit from that. And there is like we could talk about the product of art and what that looks like, but for me it's more of the process of it. And when I think I'm going to do art, I think oh good, I get to enter my orb. And so, when it comes to like, that, that doesn't exist when I'm doing commissions usually, because when I'm doing commissions, I'm thinking about what my client wants me to do. And um, usually, there's a difference between art and design, where art is more, uh, it's left to someone's interpretation, whereas design has to be very specific. You're trying to sell something usually or convey a message with design. So, my commission work, even though it requires the same skill set, it's design. And my. Um, wishy-washy feelings or calmness thing that's art to me that is people interpret it differently i'm not trying to have one agenda where i send a message i like it when people come away with different takeaways from a piece um and that's what i like making more than design
0: yeah and not wishy-washy at all actually <laughs> thank you it's very real and uh, so important it gives anybody else meaning if anything um, my last question, Sophia, is what is your favorite Procreate brush? I just can't help myself as somebody that's just getting into digital design. I have to ask.
1: about this and I was like, I have some fun brushes that I like. I have some very practical brushes that I use a lot. And then I go through brush phases where I like spend ages using one and then forget about it, get bored of it. So the most consistent brush I use all the time is Studio Pen, and I will tell you why. It's because if you drag a color into a circle you've made with Studio Pen, it will be very clean. It won't create a white little line, which other pens will do. So Studio Pen, I like to use if I'm outlining, I need a very clean line. Um, If I want to use color dropping, if I want to color in and make sure there's no white space, I will use studio pens. A very versatile useful pen to use. If I'm sketching, so especially for commissions or first drafts, I will usually sketch. And I used to sketch with the pencil brushes, but they don't they're not great for sketching. So I like using gloaming, which is a under the drawing category. So gloaming is a good brush that I use for sketching. And then when it comes to painting, if I'm painting using clipping masks, I um I like using sort of the oil paint one, or um, or maybe like the watercolor one, fresco's fun. I like sort of experimenting with texture. If I My whole thing is I like it to look like mixed media. I like it to look like watercolors or oil pastel or oil paint. So if I can achieve texture, I love that. I think it's so cool that digital art can make something look like a real oil painting. So any brush that gives me texture, lots of fun. We'll usually use it with a clipping mask. If I'm not using a clipping mask, if I'm painting straight on, I like the watercolour ones. I think it's called like Soak. Is it called Soak? There's like a lot of wet brushes you can use further down if you scroll. And um, I like to use those to give a sort of inky effect. And one more. Sorry, I just thought one more. I like fine liner. I'm really obsessed with like Quentin Blake and that sort of illustration style. And it looks like he uses a fine liner and watercolour. So when I'm trying to give off like Quentin Blake vibes, I like using the... Um, The fine liner pen, and then doing the ink underneath on a separate layer. I don't know if it's really technical, but it's nice to week out with someone about this.
0: No, it was great. I love it. And just a very quick kind of follow up on that since you mentioned the word vibe, I'm curious whether you found one brush to really encapsulate your personality or your. kind of who you are as a person if any
1: oh my gosh that is a great question and i okay oh my goodness i'm thinking that okay it's a niche brush i like i don't even know how to say it gelsinky gelsinky Gelsinki? it's kind of like a sketchy brush you can kind of do ink illustrations with it it has some sort of texture and you can layer on top of it, but it's still practical enough that you can use it for other things. So it's a little bit fun. It's not too fun that it's unusable, but it's fun. It's versatile still, it's practical still, but it's a little bit, I don't wanna say quirky cause that word is very 2013, but it's its not as boring as Studio Pen or um, one of the like very boring pencils and i think that relates to me because i try to be practical at least in like my corporate job commissions section i want to make stuff that people can use i don't want them to pay me money and then i make them something where they're like oh it's so interesting i want to i want to be of service i want to you know have a place in society where i can be of use but at the same time i want to try and put a little spin on it i want to try and give it some texture um so there that was That was me on the spot. So maybe I'll come up with a different one later. But that was a great question.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Sophia. That wraps up all my questions. I'm just really um, so honored to have had this time with you. And I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. It's just meant so much. Thank you so much. Just feel free to follow us for the next season, thank you and have a lovely day.